I wouldn't be afraid to ask a date to Dungeons and Dragons at some point, as I have done in the past. But welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions by totally not walking back anything they said last week. Coming to you from newly reopened Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bovinger. With me on the line, as always, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going? Doing all right. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I, I did. Well, first of all, I owe you... Um, uh, thank you for, well, I don't know if it's a thanks or not, for uh, reminding me that I could find our podcast on the native uh, iOS podcast player, oh, you... and that I could therefore listen at double speed, which yeah. allows me to, you know, pay more uh, timely attention to the things that I've said, um, which allowed me to check what I said about this, you know, fast developing, uh, mega hat kid story. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we were pretty good actually for yeah. as, as far as hot takes went. I mean, first off, um, this fast paced world is too fast paced for you to just give in and listen at two times speed. I like to slow down and smell the smell the roses and listen at 1.5 times speed. Well, that's the difference between civilization and madness. <laughs> yeah. um, but yes, I mean, I, I went back and listened to it, too. Um, I don't know that anybody ever actually reads the episode descriptions, but um, I, uh, I had already submitted the episode on a scheduled release before new information came out about it. And um, I then updated the episode description, but, you know, we didn't record anything new. And, you know, now we can talk about what happened differently. Although, I, as I, as you just said, we weren't, you know, particularly wrong. I went back and listened to what I said. And I said that, you know, I wouldn't, if I were talking to the kid, I wouldn't yell at him. I wouldn't berate him. I would ask what was going on there. And, you know, if I got a chance to do that, he would have told me that angle was misleading. Here's some other stuff that happened. Here's what I was doing. Um, so, you know, there's a difference between a rush to judgment and a rush to action. Um, you know, action would be harassing people like that, sending them death threats, trying to make their lives miserable. That's a terrible thing to do even when you're right. Um, whereas, you know, yeah. everybody has an immediate judgment when they see a video like that. Well, it's, and, one the, it's one of the weird things about this era that we're in is that with so much information, and I say that in the in this in the context of this conversation, I use that term in the widest possible sense, you know, it's, it, it is not necessarily information related to any kind of what well, noise is probably better. Right. So just, there's so much noise, right. Uh, the noise may appear to offer a signal, but it's really quite difficult to tell the signal from the noise. And as it comes streaming past our eyeballs, there's, often an accompanied call to action but what what is what is that action what does it actually entail and then what's the result and that's part of the deal with this whole mega kid thing and again you know i think there is some value to to touching back on it um in part because people you know people talking about it across the country and across the world for several days means that it's important i mean it, it reflects something and it's i don't think you can be so elitist to say, you know, oh, just because people were talking about it for several days, 
that doesn't mean it's actually important. I think it, it resonated in a way that tells us something about the times we live in in a significant way. And to me, that's that people had a reaction and they felt that that reaction should then result in something. Right. But we don't know that kid. We don't know anybody who knows that kid. There's no way for us to actually change something in a way that would make anything better. And that's and, why we mentioned his community is the one that should deal with it. Not and, us. and indeed, that's people one of the who know him, right. people who can ask him. Um, and I think part of that, you know, that just that that sense of a need for the, the need to express an opinion and for that opinion to have an effect, but, you know, faced with the reality. So that's that impulse, that urge faced with the reality of, um, of no mechanism for actually resulting in something good. There's this kind of, uh, sound and fury signifying nothing and, and doing nothing other than making us all stressed out, angry, and fearful of one another. Um, because of course <clears throat> there is a possible effect, which is that this guy now has, you know, this, uh, what is, his last name was Sandman, right? So something I other Sandman. I don't know. I've actually avoided even learning his name. I've actually, I mean, I, I've, I've gone back and forth on trying to forget it because, um, because that's what, that's what the situation actually deserves, right? This kid actually deserves to be forgotten and to just turn into another, just another 16 year old. Um, but unfortunately that's, you know, that, that time has, has sort of passed, but, um, the, you know, the urge to do something to affect him has resulted in these, uh, the creation of this internet history that, that he now has, and that is probably going to turn, I mean, that it already has turned him into a sort of a folk hero on the right, um, as well as an object of intense hatred among a certain category of people on the left. But I think, yeah, it's just, it's just another reminder of this, of this current age that we're in where things could be so good, right? The tools that we have available to us could make our lives and our, and our social existence so much better to reveal new information and enlighten each of us as individuals and as members of a society. But because we are what we are, we instead take those tools and use them to just bludgeon and stupefy one another. Um, obviously, with the, the exception of the two of us who, well, of course, who emanate enlightenment to all who are lucky enough to uh, know of our of our wisdom. Yeah. Well, I so I have a friend who listens to this podcast um, with some regularity when he can, and um, after we recorded last week's episode, but before it had gone up, he was he just messaged me completely unrelated to anything involving us, and said, "Wow, I'm hearing about this MAGA hat kid thing. 
And apparently it's like, you know, it's the main story everybody's talking about. And he said, I, if you had just shown me a list of news stories, I would not have thought that was in the top, like, 30 things we would be talking about, let alone right. the number one thing everyone's talking about. And I was kind of surprised by that. This is where it sort of goes back to our not having enough faith in people, where, mm. um, in fact, you would have – he had too much faith in people in that case because mm. um, being the cynic that I am – to my mind, that strikes me as exactly the story everyone would spend all their time talking about. It's basically what cable news exists for, which right. is you can turn it on at any point, come in partway through, see a bunch of people being very emotional in a way that makes you want to keep watching or that to share clips or something like that. Um, and, I mean, you know, it has all the elements to make um, to make a big news story for people, which is that you start off with um, an image that seems powerful in the original video that plays to people's pre-existing views about what teenagers at a pro-life rally wearing MAGA hats would be doing to native people. Um, and then when there's the walk back from the Rashomon-like revelation of the other angles, then it gives the conservatives exactly what they want, which is a chance to decry the liberal media as biased against them as selling fake news. And it lets them be super outraged and create a new cultural hero for them to then go on talk shows. Um, there was a Jamel Bowie had a well, yeah, right, but it's also but it also is the novelty of it because, like, you know, do you talk about the thirty fifth day of the shutdown, right, with the same degree of incomprehension and anger as the thirty fourth, as the second, as the eighth? You know, like, mm -hmm. do you talk about the thousands of children who were lost by DHS? when separated by their parents entering this country and God knows what happened to those poor children. Do you talk, you know that, Oh, that's an old story. You know, do you talk about, um, you know, yet another young person or poor person, person of, you know, someone among the, you know, 40% of Americans who can't come up with $400 to pay an emergency who gets arrested on $500 bail for something that if you really think about it, shouldn't even be a misdemeanor. And that gets them implicated in our cash based criminal justice system and ends up destroying their lives. You know, that happens to thousands and thousands of people every day. Right. I mean, that may be well, I mean, thousands a day may be a bit much, but it happens to a lot of people. Um, and uh, thousands a day is probably probably a bit much, but um, you know, maybe a bit much for in terms of like ruining their lives. But certainly, there are at a minimum hundreds of people who are um, who are dealing with that system, which is at a minimum inefficient and, you know, the maximal position, you know, inhumane and abhorrent. Do we talk about these things? No, because that's dog bites man. But here we have man bites dog. Like, oh, whoa, did you see this crazy thing that happened? You know, you'd never believe it. You'd never believe it. It fits perfectly into your preconceptions. Exactly. You know, but the details are so, uh, are so unusual, you know, that even the addition of that extra video, um, where it's like, it's even crazier than you thought. It's not just Catholic high school students mobbing indigenous peoples, you know, activists. It's 
them plus this crazy cult. But even with that additional degree of, you know, man bites dog um, novelty, it still it just goes even further into the tribal identities because of the um, additional racial component. So it's just, yeah, there's so much. I mean, you know, I think I think the man bites dog thing is is an important angle to this. That yeah, I guess some people talked about it, but but to me, the just that novelty of it that it catches our eye. And then also triggers our most base assumptions or our, our most fundamental assumptions about the way the world works. You know, it's, that's the information world that we're in. You know? Isn't it amazing how somehow every time the refs blow a call, it's against your team? <laughs> yeah. Every other call is right, yeah. but the ones that are against your team are blown. So, yeah. Yeah, the, so well, and that's why, I mean, that's where too, like with a, with the refs, I mean, that's a, uh, I can't address that with this next point, but one of the things that I just wish pe- people were better at in general, and with this episode in particular, is just saying, I wasn't there, I have no idea what happened, and it's not important enough to know what happened, because it's not that big a deal. You know, the people who are, it's like with a, with a crime, you just say, Hey, I wasn't there. I'm not going to prejudge this case. That is in fact what you are required to do. If you are going to serve as the juror, you know, as a member of the jury on the case, right? You have to say, I don't know enough, you know, to prejudge this case. I am, I have an open mind and I am willing to hear evidence, you know? And then at least with a, with a criminal in the criminal context, there's this concept of, non-guilt, you know, as opposed to evidence, which is just to say, we don't have, there's not enough evidence to, for us to condemn this person. But in the court of public opinion, that's, you know, there, there are no scruples that successfully restrain people, at least in that initial sort of white hot moment, uh, where stories go viral to say, Hey, you know what? There might not be enough evidence to actually justify high moral dudgeon on this topic. And I would note in you know in in your defense, um, you mentioned when I was listening to your part again last week that you had looked for another angle of the camera stuff that you said made it look even worse. Um, a picture of them sort of surrounding him in a different panoramic view. Right now, you know everything can turn out to be a little misleading and. You know, I was a juror at one point, and when I was a juror and my judgment really, really mattered, you know, we sat there and we took a very long time going over what are the other possible explanations that we might not be seeing here, you yeah. know, other than the obvious immediate brush of the evidence, because, you know, if these people are going to go to jail for five to seven years, we're right. going to, we should give them at least, you know, a couple hours of our time to make sure we shift through the evidence. And um, and so that's very different than when you see something on the news and you have a reaction about it and when you talk about it with friends or even on your podcast, right, exactly. as long as you're not calling for people to take action about it. And we didn't. In fact, the actions, if, if anybody who followed our advice in the last episode would have ended up doing what would have worked out, you know, it, you know, not harassing the person if you didn't know him, if you did know him asking what was going on, you could have gotten other explanations and it's not as though, even though things, you know, were not nearly as bad as they at first looked, 
there still were racist gestures towards the Native American. <laughs> right. Like it, and, and, and the answer to that that a lot of people on the right give is, oh, well, you know, they're just kids. Kids will be kids. To which Jamel Bowie had a tweet where he's like, oh, I, I'm waiting for the next time a black kid is mistakenly thought to have been doing something wrong by the police to end up on Savannah Guthrie's show after enduring even more abuse. And the first reply to that was somebody saying, no, it's really cute that you think the black kid would still be alive to be on the television show. Right. And, you know, Ed, that is kind of an encapsulation of how, um, I mean, that, that does show some disparities in our system where young black men are treated as adults in a way that young white men aren't. Remember when, you know, Trump said that his son, who was like 39 at the time, was just right. a kid when he was colluding yeah. with Russians. But, you know, a 16-year-old black man who gets killed for something he didn't do was no angel. Yeah, I mean, I, this is this is an incredibly complicated right, exactly. we can't, topic that we probably shouldn't even have attempted to to bring up. But but I mean, taking this issue seriously, that is, those are the stakes, right? That's what that's what that's what is behind the anger that drove people to double down on criticizing the you know the Covington High School students was saying like. But these are the stakes. And, you know, to me, it went so far into the Lex Talonis that it, you know, eye for an eye uh, ethics that it, you know, that it just utterly froze me and turned me off and made me, to some extent, to the extent that this was a matter of like ebb and flow and, you know, pushback and sort of outrage and reaction um it made me engage in part of the reaction because you know but but that itself is, a, is an unfortunate way of even having to look at it because um as you said yes like you see what some of those kids were doing and you know they were doing things that were unacceptable right that you should that you should not accept that someone would do but then if some other member of the group or some huge section of the group that looks and says, Oh, this is unacceptable. Thinks it's unacceptable in part because of misunderstanding the whole context, but is right for the wrong reason. IE, you know, they don't have enough information to actually understand what's going on and they condemn behavior as sort of something that, you know, like 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 aggravated assault or something, and I, I'm I'm using too many, you know, pseudo legal terms um, for someone with no expertise, but um, you know there is a difference between the same act and the same act in accompanying you know accompanying a, an even worse act. We make that distinction in in our justice system, and to some extent, it would be useful to apply that to this as well. Um, you know, but how do you how do you walk back that high outrage and get it back and sort of dial it back to mere disapproval? You know, especially when, again, in the final analysis, we anonymous random people online don't deserve to have any real input on these people's lives. You know, why should we? 
Right. So it's it's totally bizarre, but I mean, this is the world that we're in, and and again, you know, as much as I would love to believe that we are figuring out the rules and moving forward in a way that will develop like good ethical standards for us to live as citizens and members of a society, it really doesn't seem like we're moving in that direction. It just seems it seems like some you know halfway between just chaos and entrenching uh you know really i don't i don't want to exaggerate it too much but just entrenched like really bad developments really bad trends right yeah but speaking of really bad trends um and things of <laughs> national import the shutdown ended uh this week uh which was when it actually finally happened, it was a bit more sudden than I was expecting. Um, yeah. There was sort of this rush up to it where we had the votes in the Senate. Um, but what you mean, the votes were held, not that we had the votes to end the shutdown because we didn't. Um, which was incidentally, um, so there were two Senate bills that were voted on. One was the Trump plan and one was the Democrat Democratic plan. And um, there were a very small number of people who voted for both. I think the only Democrat who voted for both was Joe Manchin. But I think five or six Republicans voted for both plans, one of whom was, of course, Mitt Romney, who has actually been, you know, putting his his vote where. But uh, in this case, putting his vote where his mouth has been, um, he voted for both plans. And then there were a, a, after that vote, there was a flood of stories about a really tense meeting by the Republican senators um, before the vote, where Mitt Romney apparently, like, wow, really went off on some people. Or as much as Mitt Romney does, he probably was rather steamed by the whole thing and had some, I don't know, um, almost considered having caffeine or something. But um, he, uh, anyway, so so after those stories came out, um, it was almost like there was just enough of a flood of stories of people being furious about the shutdown that um, even though it didn't seem likely to end at any given point, it felt like it was crescendoing to something, at least to me, and then it did. Yeah, well, I think um, this is one, I think this is a situation where the uh, the airport shut down. Right, that was uh, a big part led, too. Yeah, I think I think obviously there were there was dissension in the ranks for. A long time you know there were republicans talking about how foolish this was you know leaking things um trying to figure out a way out before they folded and so you know crescendo you, I, I mean you could call it a crescendo because indeed it got uh more and more intense until it ended but um my understanding is this was uh if anything, organized by the people who made that shut, who basically shut down the, um, the LaGuardia airport. So I'm, I haven't been following it close enough to really speak with authority, but, um, yeah, the combination of, uh, different types of workers associated with the airlines and the airport security who, to some extent seem to have coordinated, effectively coordinated a walkout, uh, to say, you know, to communicate that this, this cannot continue. And then, then that was, I, I, I think it's quite plausible to, to, to propose that that was the, the final straw that showed that 
you know, food inspections just not happening. Um, again, the airline inspections that were not happening, uh, licenses not being issued, those sorts of things that is sort of maybe even a corollary to the, uh, to the Trump impeachment stuff, right? That it's like, it's right there, but for some reason, it doesn't seem like a crisis, even though it is obviously a crisis. Yeah. You know, there's not one day that that should be ha- that that should be allowed to happen. Right. Um, it's like you said, date, you know, you know. but yeah. there's also no but then, one day. But then day... finally the, the, you know, the workers effectively made a walkout and that, that forced the issue. That's my understanding. Right. Of how it, how well, this, it this, and this also happened at the same time that a lot of Trump people made some really Marie Antoinette like statements about right. what federal workers right. should do. Wilbur Ross had some particularly bad ones. I don't know if you heard the Larry Kudlow one where he said that the, the people were volunteering to work without pay because of their love for the president. I mean, yeah, that one was. That one was of course, as soon as he said it, the reporter was like, "What did you say?" And he's like, "Oh, don't you twist that! I know you're going to twist that. I'm going to walk away." And it's just like, "Well, you said something really dumb. I know that it probably right. just came out. It wasn't a prepared remark, but that was a really dumb thing to say. Don't blame the person who, who's asking for clarification that you said something <laughs> yeah. dumb. If I did that, then I'd be blaming a lot of people in my life. But, um, anyway, I mean, I felt like the, and the poll numbers were getting really bleak as well." Um, yeah. 538, a few hours before the shutdown ended, had a a, a piece on just how, wor- how it was getting worse for Trump and the Republicans. And then when yeah. he blinked, they basically – they had their article on why did he blink? And it's like, well, look at the polling article we just did. Uh, it was not particularly good. But I want to say that um, has any – has have you th- can you think of any figure who has gone from the – disdain from the left to exaltation that Nancy Pelosi got through this shutdown. It was just a couple weeks ago. They were like, no, we need to get her out. We need to put some fresh blood in there. We can't have the establishment running everything forever. She's part of the problem. All of that stuff. Could you imagine if this shutdown had been navigated by somebody who didn't know what they were doing? Yeah, I think I think this is clearly vindication for her, uh, vindication that she, you know, did not need, should not have needed, because her reputation is pretty, or should be, again, quite clear. I mean, her what she's accomplished should speak for itself. Um, I've been pretty consistent on that, I think, and you know, even. I mean, even an enemy has got to acknowledge what she has accomplished. She's just, it's, it's out there. It's the record. It's the law of the land, right? That's that's what she's been able to do. And um, as to your question of kind of what are the historic peaks and troughs, I feel like, you know, go back to 2009, 2010, you know. I mean, I, like, there's so many moments of – Right, like, like there's actually a set phrase for this: of democratic bedwetting. Right, like I've seen that phrase repeated again and again all throughout the Obama years. Right, and... the, the stock phrase for Democrats is "Democrats in disarray," which is why after the shutdown ended, Senator Bed- bedwetting was the was the phrase yes, that I, I I heard what you said. Okay. <laughs> I... <laughs> um... David happens to be lying down on a bed right now, which 
<laughs> you you can't see, but is relevant to the conversation, I'm sure. I'm yeah. Thanks. That was very charitable of you. Yes. Um, um, well, I just meant that like of the things people say about Democrats, Democrats in disarray is one of these stock headlines. And Senator Brian right. Schatz, who's kind of amusing to follow on Twitter, um, had a, a tweet right afterwards. We just he just tweeted Democrats in array. That's funny because That's it's good. just so much not something yeah. we're used to seeing. One one thing that um, passed across my mind today and was one of these things that in an earlier age I might have like tweeted it or put it on Facebook or something, but instead I just wrote it down and thought, huh, that's a thought. Maybe I'll mention it to Charles. Was that it, it, it does seem to me that in a way perhaps evoking the 2015-2016 Brexit Trump, you know, shared Anglophone disaster, uh, which, you know, You know, here we, here we should be all about avoiding facile comparisons and delving into the complexities of things rather than just kind of shoehorning t topics, you know, into the same Procrustean bed, if I can completely grotesquely mix my metaphors. Um, the, uh, you know, Brexit, you had this very confused political narrative sort of elite political narrative out of touch with what, you know, tens of millions of people in the country were actually thinking and dealing with the dissatisfaction they felt with mainstream politics, both on the left and the right, you know, leading to a kind of Hail Mary electoral outcome by, uh, driven by a hardcore minority uh, that was highly motivated, but that was also accompanied by Again, when I say Hail Mary, this kind of naive uh, hope for something different, right? And that, that I think, is a fairly parsimonious, perhaps even elegant description of both Brexit and Trump. Um, even if you could go, again, much deeper into other motivations, including racism in both cases. Uh, so that happened, you know, two years ago, three years ago. Uh, three and a half years ago, but perhaps now too, we see the sort of conclusion of that process where, you know, the Democrats in America were steadily, inexorably moving forward on a negotiating stance of legalism and constitutionalism. You cannot hold the government hostage. You cannot usurp your constitutional authority by holding the salaries of federal workers hostage. That was essentially their position. And they added to that, and we will not support this wall, which is a moral obscenity. But, you know, the fundamental position, I would say, was, you know, actually, let's talk wall, but not before the government is reopened. So they, they stood up to Trump's maximalism with pure legalism in a way. And that's exactly what the EU is doing to Brexit. They're saying, okay, tell us what you want, but we'll tell you what is possible for us to negotiate because we are a massive supranational organization 
based on treaties and laws that dictate our the the dictate what we can offer you and it's not about sovereignty or will or you know nuance it's just what is the european constitution what have we all 27 of us agreed through painstaking legal processes that's what we will present to you and the british continue to insist that that's a negotiating stance just like trump insisted that we're going to make a deal when in fact no there's a thing called a constitution and you will obey that constitution and you know trump uh fell into just abject defeat in the face of that position and i suspect that the british are about to and the real tragedy is that in both cases you know real people are suffering because of that irresponsible negotiating position you know in america it was um you know only 35 days of missed pay and all the attendant um you know the blow to economic productivity and the um the work that wasn't done by companies that couldn't get licenses and i mean it's really terrible really terrible blow to our society but in you know i mean by all predictions of a, of a no deal Brexit. I mean, that's going to be a, there will be blood on their hands as far as I understand it. Well, uh, the, um, the distinction though, that is also important between these two things is that when America made a poor decision in 2016, or well, not really America, Americans by plurality made the right decision, but a, the electoral college made the wrong decision. Um, right. that, uh, our system has a wonderful solution to that, which is that we get another vote. <laughs> we get a vote in 2020, and we get to kick him out. And even if he somehow wins in 2020, we get to come out. He's gone in 20 in you know January 2025. Then, um, and uh, the part of what was what's so crazy about the Brexit referendum is we're at a point where it certainly seems like the British society has a lot of Irish remorse on this, but there's never there isn't going to be a second referendum. That certainly appears to be the case, and um, I, I don't even know if it's true that, I mean, a significant portion of the British populace has buyer's remorse, but, uh, you know, I was looking at some, uh, you know, some polling information that, uh, and I, I don't know how reliable these figures are, but what I saw said that it was like 24% wanted a new referendum, and... 26% or something like a slightly higher number, but both just about a quarter, um, wanted no deal. You know, they wanted to move forward and just leave the EU on any terms, you know, you know, deal or no deal. Um, and as, as crazy as that is to believe, I think it's because of this paralysis where the labor party, I mean, where both parties are split by Brexit. Um, both parties are split with some people who want a second referendum and some who say um, because the first referendum did not refer to a second re referendum, then, you know, there are no, no, no do-overs, which, like you say, is, um, you know, it's a problematic position to take because, you know, 
we have regular elections in our constitution because we are, you know, the founders were cognizant of the fact that you have to have a sense of the future and a predictable path into the future in order to have a functioning political society. Um, you know, I love this phrase that I believe was in the politics, Aristotle, um, you know, to rule and be ruled in turn is what it means to be a citizen. Um, and, you know, the British regularized their electoral calendar, theoretically. Right. More than it used to be at any rate. Right. And they, I mean, they haven't been sticking with it, but they, you know, they made this big deal about regularizing their political, you know, their, their, um, you know, uh, their election timelines every five years, I believe. And, um, you know, and they can't stick to it and they're, they're lost in this timelessness of the debate over, over their essential nature. You know, are they Europeans or are they British? Are they English? And, um, it's destroying their country, which is totally predictable. Um, given the fact that it's not realistic, you know, it's not realistic to, to think about these sorts of, uh, essential questions without thinking about time. And the opportunity for the next expression of the will of the people. And again, yeah, if you like, ideally you would have that in a constitution so that everybody would know what the rules of the game in fact are. And, um, yeah, for all those, like, for all those George W. Bush era memes about, like, the queen taking over again, yeah. you know, God yeah, bless the, God bless the with USA. Our system. Um, yeah, I, that's one of the, that's just as, as a side note, that's something I've always kind of, like, it's, there's a part of me that feels like if I ever met royalty, I would be almost morally obligated not to say things like your highness or anything great like that, because <laughs> I'm an American and part of being an American is that we don't give in to just hereditary monarchy. And yeah. you know that like, we don't, we don't think that a person is better than us simply because they were born from a higher lineage. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a really interesting article. There's a really interesting article in the tablet. I believe it was magazine about um and i mean i might have stopped me if i've already talked about this or or good luck trying to stop me if i've already talked about this it's probably the more self-aware statement yeah um but there was a there was like a comparison of trump's wielding of the legacy of andrew jackson with mm. the historical andrew jackson and it was really interesting because, you know, again, it was part of I mean, it was it was partly interesting because it was written outside of the like depressingly obvious uh, dualism of like you know liberal left and Fox News um, because it didn't it, it didn't sort of go for the cheap shot against Andrew Jackson. It was like, what did Andrew Jackson mean? to the Republic of the time, you know, why was he a revered figure then? Um, and it was because he was part of the process of guaranteeing that America would not 
you know, that, that American democracy would extend to the masses, that it would be a, a mass democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easy to overlook that because of his racism, but we also have to, you know, it, we don't have to, but if, if you're going to be honest and if you're going to think historically, you have to acknowledge the fact that it was, you know, that it was not guaranteed that rights would be extended to the Scots-Irish, you know, right. um, or Germans and, or Germans or the Dutch as his running mate was Martin you know, a non-native English speaker. And like these things actually even have contemporary political resonance if we are able to um, see them in. Well, the, the in arguments sort of... by the people who didn't want to extend those rights to the people are the same as the arguments we get now for all immigrants. It's, it's always, right. oh, well, they're not going to learn the language. You're going to bring disease and crime and all of these other things. And, right. um, and you know, it's, and... it's as true then as it was now. Right, and that, and the going specifically to, it was the, never true, to, to the clear. point of the segue, um, where I departed from what you said, you know that that Andrew that uh, Andrew Jackson would, you know, would knock Trump's teeth out. You know, he would despise Trump for everything that he represents, um, and Trump's you know fixation with, uh, sort of, you know, pseudo Sun King you know, gold plated everything, um, fixation with dictators and royals and such, you know, that, that Andrew, that old hickory, right? Like military man revered by the common people, um, for being of the common people would, uh, would despise him for, you know, I don't know if it's true. I'm not a Jackson scholar, but, um, but it was an interesting counterpoint to the, like, again, kind of, yeah, you know, uh, legitimate, but also very well trodden argument for like take Henry Jackson off the, or excuse me, um, Andrew Jackson off the, you know, off the. Um, it's been so long since I've even used American money. He's on the twenty, right? Yeah, it's, it's on, on the, the 20. twenty. Wow, that's. I guess it really does go. <laughs> that's... Well, in Turkey, it's all out of Turks. So. <laughs> yeah. That's anyway. true. Yeah, but yeah. So take take him off the twenty and replace him with, um, you know, Harriet Tubman or whoever I still, else it would be. I still have you know, a pre a pre re decimalization or whatever it was they did um, Turkish lira note in my wallet from when I was there twenty years ago, and it's like a hundred thousand Turkish lira, and which I think now is worth like what ten <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't. You obviously you can't. You can't use it. Yeah, but exchange them anymore. But people actually still do quote prices in like thousands and millions sometimes right. it's, it's sort of weird the old scientific notation required yeah but we we may get back there particularly if so there's a funny thing uh for since we're talking about hyperinflation and the events of the day let's just keep on keep on right on uh because um you know uh, erdogan has thrown in fully behind Maduro and you know this that sort of declaration of support um, was it was sort of obvious that that was going to come because they have been very publicly visibly um, sidling up to each other and expressing support for each other over the past 
couple years, including you know, Maduro when people in his own country were starving and losing what was it? Do you happen to know? It's it was like fifteen pounds. I don't know. I will per confess capita, if this were yeah. a trivia competition and the question were what is the average weight loss per capita of Venezuelans under Maduro, I would not know. Right, and it's I mean I'm obviously this is you know, in the context of like mass institutional breakdown and migration of like ten percent of the population, if not more, um you know, these figures are, are I'm sure contested. But in any case when the specter of famine is stalking the land and you travel with your coterie to Turkey to eat overpriced meat, uh, salted by that internet phenomenon, salt by, you know, the guy who like sprinkled the salt off of his elbow. Hmm. I did not. Anyways, this, it's this ridiculous meme, uh, of this Turkish chef who like sensually massages meat as he's cutting it and then, uh, sprinkles salt on it by bouncing it off of his forearm. It's, it's, it's totally bizarre, but it was a thing. Uh, and Maduro went to that guy's restaurant in Turkey and was eating, you know, stuffing himself with this overpriced steak while his people starved. And Erdogan, um, is all in on, on supporting him. So it's an interesting expression of this, uh, this strangely sheltered illiberalism of people like Orban, who is in the European Union, um, or, um, or, uh, Erdogan, who is in NATO, uh, but also trying to go against the expressly stated wishes of the majority of the including the most powerful members of those uh, alliances and associations to support um, these illiberal pseudo-majoritarian leaders. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating to me that um, Trump, with his affinity for autocrats, where Maduro ends up on that is is interest is is interesting to me just because you know he's the kind of guy you'd think Trump would love but I feel like he's probably got advisors who are like oh but you realize he's a leftist right um and that makes him not like Maduro because you may have heard that the US was like there was some remark some uh some story about how we were like recognizing the opposition leader right um which I don't know Venezuela has been I, I think all the way back to the early George W. Bush administration when there was that attempted coup against Chavez and right. um, and Bush was like Bush, the Bush administration was like really quick to try to recognize the coup. And then when the coup failed, that was a disaster, which, right. by the way, has parallels in Turkey, although America would never have recognized that coup. Yeah, I mean, right. Sort of. I mean, I mean not par- paralyzed in the not sense of through it people anyway. being incredibly sensitive to perceptions of uh, the violation of their sovereignty, obviously. Yeah. You mean like not doing Brexit? Uh, 
There well, might be. you know, <laughs> the people, you know, and this is, yeah, I mean, the people, there, you know, there are people who are, who were pro-Brexit, who were angry that, you know, Merkel and Obama uh, said, this is a bad idea. You know, oh, you're influencing our sovereign democratic process. You know, and then there are people who are, who were Remainers who say, you know, look at what Russia did. They were actually funneling money in ways that actually contravene United Kingdom law. And that violated our sovereignty. So that, that issue is live on both ends of that, of that spectrum, as it is obviously in, uh, you know, in relation to, to, the, to the election of Trump. Um, but yeah, people, you know, people care about sovereignty. It's not just nationalists. Right. Although I feel like there may be a slightly different view as to what counts as sovereignty between nationalists and, and other people. Um, right. And, and, and again, this is something that we should spend time talking about in more intelligent ways. You know, it's just so difficult to have intelligent conversations when history is so complicated and the, the payoff for simplifying complex topics is so high. You know, the short term payoff, that is, because obviously if you could if you could avoid simplifying the complex topics, <clears throat> you could potentially have a, a better long term outcome. But you can't get to that long term outcome because the short termism predominates. Right. Well, unfortunately, in the in the short term, I have to run off and meet someone. So we're going that to cut good. this episode. I'm, I'm getting so good at my segues. That is the one skill I have developed from doing this podcast. Um, I've got work on segues and how to record conversations. And then, yeah. that's, that is the great gift that I have given myself through this podcast. Of course, along with the sterling conversation that I have been privileged to have through it. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'm going to have to call this an episode now. We'll uh, see you guys next week. Hopefully there won't be any crazy news developments that are unfortunate in the next week. Um, see you guys later. Bye.